Hi, I'm Steven. And I'm Jake. Welcome to Tales from the SaaS Graveyard, where we talk to employees at tech companies that are in the middle of the bell curve, not going out of business, but definitely not hitting the big time. The SaaS Graveyard is a purgatory populated by companies that have made it to annual revenues in the 30 to 50 million range, but can't get to the next level, which is pretty impressive outside of Silicon Valley, but frowned upon here. We interview folks in various roles about their experience working at companies like this. We're looking to see what common themes emerge across industries and roles. Today, we will speak to Carl, who spent four years at a recruiting software company that we will call Link Out, that had about 30 million in funding. There were about 50 employees when he joined as a software engineer, despite the, the fact that he did poorly on one of the interviews. We'll hear more about Carl's interview experience in a minute. But Stephen, what is your worst interview experience? Oh man, I had this one final round of interview where I did all this prep work, had this like big homework assignment, did f- spent five to eight hours on this thing. And I was really happy with what I came up with. And that part of the interview went really well. I was able to present it. Everything was really clear. But then I got a product design question that I just hit a wall on. And usually I love these types of questions, but it was focused on designing a timeline feed similar to Facebook on a specific uh, type of product that I was interviewing for. And I just got so hung up that everyone I knew hated this product. And it was really about how can we increase engagement with this product? But everything in my mind was just focusing on my friends saying like, no, I hate this thing. Why would I ever use this? I love email instead of this. And I just got so stuck. I couldn't get out of that. And um, I did not get the job. But yeah, what about you, Jake? What was your worst interview experience? So I had an onsite, you know, five interviews lined up. I had the, they gave me the full schedule. And on the second one, I also had a product design question that I did poorly on. And it was about um, develop some sort of tool that a five-year-old could take a bus by themselves. And I think the the issue I had is that they had various conditions around what you could and couldn't do. And then, you know, I had a five-year-old at the time myself. And so I'd be like, well, my five-year-old can read. And then they'd be like, no, assume the child can't read. And so I got very hung up on that. I just really rambled for about an hour. And, you know, I knew I hadn't done the greatest, um, but I thought, you know, it's, it's fine enough. And like they they brought me on site, so they must like me to a certain degree. Uh, and then the sort of the HR person who had been, you know, my liaison came in after that interview and told me that they had had a site issue and they couldn't complete the rest of the interviews that day. But, you know, nothing to worry about. Um, and they'll, they'll go back to me. And, and of course, it was really just an excuse to, to get rid of me because I'd done so poorly on that interview. And it is just very humiliating to like, you, know, you plan out your day, you have this full day of going to interview at this company, and then you're asked to leave uh, three hours early, and they can't even tell you to your face because you did so badly, <laughs> and they don't want to look at you. Um, so I hold that as my, the pinnacle of my bad interview experience, although I've had plenty of other bad ones, that was by far the worst. That that sounds horrible, Jake. You know, there's something about these product design questions, like, you ramble your way into them and then you're like, I can ramble my way out, but then you're just deeper and deeper into not a solution or anything that they're looking for. Oof. But enough about us. Carl, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So before you ended up at Linked Out, what were you doing uh, beforehand and what led you to Linked Out for your next role? Uh, yeah, I had a bunch of jobs um, as an engineer. Uh, I worked at a consultancy. I worked in San Francisco at a performance monitoring software company that actually IPO'd shortly after, which was kind of fun. Uh, back to consulting. Uh, so it was, it's kind of a varied journey. 
but I heard about Linked Out from a friend who I worked with at the performance monitoring company, and he'd been trying to get me to work there for a while. Yeah, I finally applied. Uh, the interview didn't really go as well as I expected uh, because of one of the theory questions. Uh, I'm a self-taught engineer, so the theory questions tend to not go very well. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting story. I, I actually pulled out my application um, and then the, comp- the food startup I was consulting for a couple months later basically gave me no notice and told me they don't have any more money to pay me. And since I'm a consultant, that means like the end right now, not two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know, maybe I'll just tell tell a linked out that I'm interested again and maybe I can re-interview or something. Uh, and they actually gave me an offer. They were they were convinced, I guess, at some point during this time that I was saying no. So that was cool. Uh, yeah, so they, they made you an offer despite the poor performance on the theory question? Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, there were a couple people on the interview panel that really liked me so much that they were recommending that we kind of override that that one interview. You end up getting the offer. Did you have any other outstanding offers that you were exploring as well during this time? Nope. So it's pretty much just like, eh, this is the best choice. Get get a paycheck, keep paying rent, all that. Let's just go for uh, linked out at that point. Yeah, I figured in order to get decent uh, competitive offers, I would have to like start a whole interview process you know, at that point, which would have probably taken a month at least. So it seemed like it was easier to just take what was already a done deal sort of and go and run with it, especially because my friend was pushing it really hard the whole time. Like I think every month he was telling me, Hey, you know, you should, you should join, you should join. What were you excited about specifically about LinkedIn? Yeah, definitely the people. I don't think I really cared that much about what they were doing. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. But the people were amazing, like really, really friendly and, very unique cast of characters in a very good way. Um, as someone that interviewed me, she had pink hair and wasn't wearing any shoes or socks during our interview, which was great. Wow. Yeah, no, that's pretty, uh, that's a good sign of an, at least an exciting culture uh, to be part of. Mm-hmm. Did, did you have any reservations about taking the role? Yeah, the, the industry. Recruiting doesn't really seem that exciting. You felt like it was a non-problem or you just felt like too hard of a problem? Yeah, it's a it's a problem, but I I think in general, I feel like it's more of a human problem than a technology problem. So hmm. it seems like it would be hard to solve with technology. Um, but beyond that, it's just, yeah, it's a little dry, you know? And, mm-hmm. and being an engineer who gets slammed with tons of recruiting emails that I never read, it's kind of seems futile. Um, was there any information that you wish you knew uh, before you decided to take the role? I think it would have been good to know how much of the business was reliant on that LinkedIn data. Okay, so let's get to your, your first day then. Can you describe your first month at uh, Linked Out? Kind of what was there? What were you doing? Who were you meeting with? Sure. I, I guess I should also say uh, during the interview process, the CEO did a really good job at pitching uh, the future of the industry and how linked out is going to play into that. 
that that got me pretty excited. It made, it kind of negated my reluctance to be in the recruiting industry. So that was helpful. Yeah, there's something like a good sales pitch to make you turn things around. Oh, kind of like take uh-huh. something that's kind of a little bit drab and boring. Be like, oh wait, no, we're changing the the future of the course of history for business recruiting. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so let's get into your your first day, first month. What what was that looking like for you? Yeah, the first month was the. I don't remember too much about the very first day, but the first month was great. Um, actually, the whole first year was pretty great. Um, my my colleagues were really awesome. Um, the everyone was excited to work there, including all the salespeople and you know, you could hear these like exciting, the gong going off and like some exciting deals getting, getting done. And, uh, we had, we had this thing where every week we would talk about the wins for the company. And, uh, it was a little cult-like, but you know, it was kind of exciting to be part of it. Um, everyone gathered around and, and like recognizing people's achievements and things like that and big deals, you know, early, sort of early stage startup stuff that's that makes that stereotype fun (laughs) um so that was cool uh one of the things that happened in the very early days though is that i was uh like this company did a lot of scraping to get data uh and we one of the really cool things on the engineering side is that we were able to do this at really big scale um and at one point, I think it was within my first three months, I was tasked to scrape a website, which I won't name, and you'll know why in a second. Uh, and I guess I scraped it a little too hard. <laughs> and this is like a public, well-known website uh, <laughs> for academics. And uh, yeah, I, I turned on the, the scraping machine uh, to grab data, to put into our database. And, you know, it was all going really well. I was pretty excited that it was happening. And then someone told me, Hey, uh, is this the website you're scraping? I said, yeah. And I was like, well, the response times are getting really slow. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh boy. So at first I was thinking, no, that can't be me. There's no way. And then I slowed, I changed the settings to slow down the scraping. And sure enough, the response times came back down to normal. (laughs) I was like, well, I guess it was me. So yeah, those were the early days. Was, was there a concern there of kind of doing the scraping of, um, should we really be doing this? Or was it kind of like, oh, we're allowed to do the scraping and, and just scraping a little too hard and just bringing the, the service down? Yeah, I think mostly the latter. Like it's, gotcha. it's public internet anyway. So, you know, I'm not doing anything different than what Google's doing when they scrape mm-hmm. all these websites, but yeah, don't DDoS people by accident. <laughs> bad idea. Bad, bad idea. Not a good business practice. Yeah. Not a good look. Not, not a good look at <laughs> all. And so were you pretty much part of a team at that point or were you just operating independently um, at that time? It's kind of just like, Hey, everyone's doing their own scraping projects. Yeah, we only had five engineers at that time. Uh, and everyone was, I swear, everyone was just so good that we were all doing like three people's jobs each. And so that was really cool. But yeah, we were all on one engineering team. But I would say primarily we were di- working on different things. 
because we just had so much work to do. Now, were there, um, what was your impressions of your colleagues? Of course, you just mentioned that you felt like the engineering team was really smart. Did you interact much with other departments at all? I would say I spent most of my time with engineers, but since there were so few of us, uh, all the lunches, we had lunch in the office every day, well, almost every day. Um, and so we had just a giant lunch table and it was great. Like you just kind of sit wherever there's a spot. And so I, I did engage with a lot of other people in the company through lunch. But when I was actually sitting there doing my work, they kind of tried to keep us isolated so we could actually get stuff done. The office was really loud. So they had the engineers off in the furthest corner to not be distracted. And I know you mentioned that you heard the gongs, the sales team. Was the sales team fairly, how big was the sales team at that point? Probably like 15 to 20 is my guess. Oh, wow. So pretty, uh, three times as big as the engineering team. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. So you, know, you mentioned that, you know, that you had this product of, of scraping out of site. Was that the primary type of things that you projects you're working on scraping or were there other projects you uh, were involved in? Not just the first few months, but your entire time there. Yeah, uh, there were, at the beginning, it was mostly scraping um, and the infrastructure around scraping. And then over time, it shifted a bit. We did definitely do less scraping after a while. And we, I did a project, a couple projects on other products, basically. So one big project was just refactoring our main like, search candidates product. Uh, and then there was another big project where we wanted to make recruiting more autonomous. So we were building a project, a product that, uh, at first was basically just this, it was a mix of all of our other products. Uh, but it was run by an admin behind the, behind the scenes to make it look like it was automated (laughs) with the long-term strategy of actually automating it through some machine learning. So I was mm-hmm. on the project. Uh, we we actually built the first, in a very startup style, we built the first MVP of the autonomous thing in three months, I think, because we just basically like did some data plumbing between the three of our other services and just called it a new thing. So that was really fun. Uh, but it had admin panels and all that too. So it was definitely quite a bit of work. Um, other things, yeah, yeah, new data sources. Uh, we, I worked on this, what was going to be a CRM, like a very lightweight recruiting CRM towards the end, but I, it didn't launch while I was there. We were maybe three quarters of the way through, something like that. Now, the as you sort of got onto new projects, were you excited about them, thinking that this was... Um, a step up for the company, like this, you know, this autom- autonomous uh, project is this going to be a, a game changer for the industry, or were you just excited more from a technical perspective of doing the work? Yeah, I think more from a technical perspective. It, uh, yeah, I was a little bit skeptical about pretty much everything starting after maybe halfway through my time there. What was that skepticism from? Well. So there was a big turning point, I think, where we, so all a lot of different startups were scraping LinkedIn uh, for data and LinkedIn sued all of them. And that basically stopped the presses on, 
on scraping of LinkedIn at least, but that was kind of our best data because when people get new jobs, they update their LinkedIn right away. The other data sources mm-hmm. tend to be out of date. So when that data source kind of went away, uh, I was suggesting some alternatives to the executives. Like, you know, maybe there's some other way we can get this same data. Uh, and no one really was listening at all. It's kind of like, no, no, strategically, we have to prove to our, to our board and our investors that we don't rely on this data, right? But the problem is we do. <laughs> so just, you know, one small detail, we definitely do. So it's like, all right, that's that's cool. So that's kind of like, it was a big turning point because after that, like the customers really loved our product and it just started getting, like the NPS scores started going way, way down. And everyone inside the company was like saying how there's other reasons for that. Don't worry about it. It's not, it's not the data, but like every salesperson was like, it's hundred percent the data. It's like all we hear about ever. So there was like really confusing, like double speak coming from leadership at that point. And that's where it started making me feel like skeptical because one, they're not telling us the truth. And two, like the strategies that they're choosing may not be the the ones that are going to succeed like i'm now i'm very skeptical about that and if that's not being addressed then you know do i really trust that these other bets are going to work out right now you mentioned that the, the sales team was you know very adamant that the, the data not having the correct data was the issue and but the leadership was pretending that wasn't the case what, what about your other colleagues at your own level like the rest of the engineering team do they sort of just believe what leadership was telling them or was everyone skeptical outside of leadership? So engineering team was very culturally isolated. We were just basically making ourselves into a, a family on the engineering side and just like not really interacting with the rest of the company after a while. So in the early days, I was saying how everything was integrated, but once the company got big enough that the lunch tables were like, you know, grouped by clicks, then that was kind of the end of that. The engineers just talked to the other engineers and we sat in a totally different area of the office. And like, I don't think there was really much connection going across besides the people that were there really early. We all kind of had our fingers on the pulse from all the people we knew that Mm -hmm. had been there a long time. But yeah, the new people didn't really know what was going on. So the double speak worked extremely well on the isolated ones. (laughs) And so when you, when you joined, you mentioned that the engineering team was just, you know, five people over your time there. How did the engineering team grow? Yeah, it exploded at some point. I think during one of the rounds, the, the investors were uh, called out exactly what you guys called out, which is that, wait, what, why are there five engineers and like 20 salespeople? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So all of a sudden we had to like, quadruple our engineering team size to get more money. So that was a rough time because the engineering interview overhead was like oppressive. We were interviewing people. Sometimes I would do like four to five interviews a week uh, and they take an hour each. And then there's prep time and debrief time. So really all in talking about like two and a half hours per interview or two hours maybe per interview. 
like four times a week. It's, it was so annoying. <laughs> and then people were rejecting her offers. So that was annoying also. I think our offer acceptance rate was like below 50%. I don't know what the normal rate is, but it's pretty annoying to go through all that effort and the debrief and you know, deliberation and all that, and then have the candidate be like, nah, never mind, I took a different offer. Or you're excited about them, but they're not excited about you. Yeah. Rejection hurts. Yeah, yeah. It, it's okay after the first few times of this, but it just, like, the waste of time was really painful. Mm-hmm. Did you find that you were spending more time in your interviews trying to sell the company? Um, yeah, sometimes. We, the interview I was doing was was one where you just have to do some small project together if we can pair on it. And so if you use my help and you're good at think, yeah, at this particular exercise, sometimes people would finish in like 20 minutes and it was an hour interview. Other times people would be going up to like, you know, 55 minutes, whatever. And sometimes obviously people didn't do it. But when it was the 20 minutes, then yeah, we would just spend the rest of the time talking about whatever as well as trying to sell the company at least see where they're at so i can tell the manager the hiring manager like what selling job they need to do because that was kind of their primary interview yep so as the as the engineering team then grew from five to 20 what did that do to the culture of the engineering team we got way slower i think i said before like everyone was doing like three people's jobs. I think by the time we were at 20, everyone was doing like three quarters of a person's job, <laughs> which is probably the normal. Exact, the output was exactly the same. <laughs> Honestly, sort of. I think by the time, like by the time you actually factor business value, like truly giving value to customers, it probably was about the same because there were so many projects that were done that, now we have so many product managers and we have so many engineers and we have so many like stakeholders that I think the roadmap was getting kind of diluted by, Oh, this seems important. And there wasn't, it wasn't as cohesive as when you knew that you had to be a scrappy team and just cut stuff because we just don't have the resources. So we were only ever working on the most essential stuff in the early days. And then later it was like adding all these different projects and occasionally some big bets uh, or just giant refactors that provided no customer value, but you know we're investing in the future. Oops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one question I had you know, from you when you mentioned that in those early days and just a five you, how were you deciding what the work uh, to be done was? Was it just coming straight from leadership? Was there a product manager you worked with? Yeah, there was a chief product officer who was a co-founder of the company. Uh, so he was primarily running the roadmap and, mm-hmm. uh, but the engineers had a lot of autonomy. We would just sometimes put in a ticket and start working on it. Just, you know, whenever we thought it was appropriate. So that was, <laughs> so it was a blend of those two. And was there ever any issues that came up there where what engineering was doing was not what the chief product officer was expecting or did that system work out for the most part? I think it worked out for the most part, but I can't remember any standout moments where that happened, but he was a pretty uh, engaged, like very present, but also confrontational guy. 
So he would totally call it out. He would have no problem calling it out if we ended up on some tangent that wasn't the roadmap. But I don't remember any specific instances of that. So I think it went pretty smoothly. Got it. And so then as the as the team grew, how did the process change? We had different pods, which was modeled after there's like a Spotify model that came out somewhere around that time. They had published some video about how to organize the company. So we, we bought into that. We made these pods that were product-based pods. And so each pod had a product manager and had the engineers that they needed. And I think design was spread across multiple pods. But so things were planned by product. And then, yeah, you had to pretty much stick to the roadmap at that point. Uh, there wasn't really enough enough time, I think. And then I, maybe the not enough perspective to really know what the best kind of YOLO task would be to do because now like you weren't there during planning, the product manager did all the planning. So you kind of just need to trust that that's what you should be working on. Besides, I think like engineering overhead projects like refactors and stuff still got slotted in, but we wouldn't just build random features because we thought they were cool. Got it. And how did you feel about this, this change to a more formal process? I mean, it seems like a inevitable thing when you're growing, but so I wasn't too resistant to it, but I definitely prefer the original process. It's more fun, but it would have been a disaster at that size, I think. As um, you know, the company grew considerably at the time you were there, you, um, you mentioned it before, Star, that it went from 50 to 150 folks. So this is one way that changed. You mentioned that at lunch, you sort of became more isolated. Were there other changes in the company as it grew? In the early days, I was saying everyone was really excited all the time. Like the weekly recap meeting was always fun and people were just excited to be there and like refer their friends. And it felt like a big family in some sense. And then for sure, as as the growth got bigger and bigger, we would have cohorts of like especially the SDRs um, that would come in and they were always younger, you know, fresh out of college. So we'd have cohorts of them come in and sometimes they'd be really fun and want to like hang out in the office and drink after work, which we did a lot in the early days. But it seemed like that all kind of flattened out and people were more like, yeah, okay, work's over. I'm just going to go home. So that was kind of a bummer. Uh, definitely, yeah, less rowdy over time more serious um other changes yeah we, at some point we expanded to two floors i now don't think i ever knew who worked on the other floor <laughs> so that was a big difference i think like once we went over a hundred or so i started to to recognize people but i don't know their names and they don't really know me so mm-hmm. it got to that point where you're in the elevator with someone that obviously works in your company because of the floor that they picked or you, you know them, like you've seen them around, you know, but you don't really know them and you're not going to say hi. So that, that kind of was a bummer as well, but I had already been through that at the other startup I worked at. So yeah, kind of expected. It's just sort of the nature of a company going from 50 to 150. Yeah, I think, just passing around like 100 or 120 is where that starts to happen. 
I don't think it's too much about the growth speed, but just like, yeah, that size is just too many people to keep track yeah. of. So you mentioned that you, you had to expand the office, but were you in the same building the entire time? We moved after the first year or so. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty short move though. It was from Soma to the other part of Soma. Was the, was the new office nicer? It was, yeah. It was a bit nicer. But, well, so the, the old office we shared with Salesforce uh, back in the day when Salesforce was distributed all around the city. And I don't know if you guys remember, but there was this news article about how Salesforce people were having sex in the stairwell at the office. <laughs> that was our stairwell. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that was our office. Is, is that what did you did, were you guys aware of this in before the article came out or did the article inform you of this? I heard rumors about it, but I didn't see anything. So so maybe some people knew before. <laughs> and was this like this was not a one time thing, this was like a regular place they would go? I, I'm not sure. Well, I would imagine well, that it would become a regular thing if you don't get caught though. Uh, that seems well, like I think oh let's try this oh yeah cool it worked let's just keep doing it I always see that that's be my expectation <laughs> once we're done taping this Stephen and I will immediately Google the article and read up all about it <laughs> <laughs> so then you you moved uh, away from Salesforce to get away from their uh, depraved minds and how is how is the new office yeah the new office was nice uh, it was it was a uh, I think designed pretty well. I think they had some some opinions about how they were going to design it. And I know there was a lot of uh, intention put into that. And we had all the the fun cliche, like slogans on the wall and, you know, we're a big happy family kind of things on the walls. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was, like, it was kind of fun, actually. Um, and yeah, it was it was good. We had a lot more space. We could actually, like, you know, spread out for lunch. All that sort of stuff. Um, it was nice. You mentioned that the the company did provide lunch. What were the other perks that you guys got? I think their other ones were just basic company things. Oh, no. Hold on. We got boba. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I started that. We had a, a weekly boba uh, team order that the company would pay for. Um, that started by us just ordering boba a lot and wasting a lot of time, like, paying each other and then at some point someone just i think brought it up during a retro like you know it'd be fun if everyone got boba and we didn't have to make it so difficult and then the vp was like okay so you want to you want caffeine <laughs> paid by the company so that you don't have to go outside and waste a bunch of time right that's what you're asking for he's like done <laughs> no problem <laughs> you'll probably work harder anyway so sure sounds great Eventually, we were actually able to get him to go up to two days a week of, of boba. So that was pretty dope. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. For the same reasoning. We're what? like, hey, this is working really really well. We're working really hard. See? And he's like, sure, whatever. <laughs> what prevented you from asking for the third day of boba? <laughs> actually, nobody wanted the third day. I did, but nobody else did. In fact, they were trying to change the second day to like some other drinks. I was like, no, guys. what's What the heck? <laughs> You're missing the point. This is not the spirit of getting free stuff. This is specifically Boba Day. 
were there other any other you know often the startups have like fun parties or do you know rich team activities did you do anything like that did any of them ever stand out we did do a couple off sites that were pretty fun um we didn't we didn't have like ping pong tables and all that other stuff it was more of a adult startup um but yeah we did a couple off sites one to sonoma and one to i think it was santa cruz or somewhere somewhere more beachy and uh the sonoma one was a <laughs> was a mess it was a party huge party and then a lot of hangover uh learning sessions <laughs> for like eight hours straight was that the whole company or just the engineering team no, everyone went, yeah, for, for engineering only, I think we had a couple offsites. We didn't really do that much that I remember for engineer offsites. It was hard to get people to agree on what to do. Half of us wanted to do something like really exciting, like, or go-karts or something along those lines. And then some of us were like, no, that's too intense. I'm not interested. And then those ideas were boring to the rest of us. So we, we really had a hard time seeing eye to eye on, on offsite plans. I, I like to imagine that you guys have just spent hours and hours arguing over the offsite plans. Absolutely. Okay, great. You really understand us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Everything took way too long when it came to deciding something, whether it be a candidate joining. Some of those debriefs were like an hour and a half long. And then again, like we would, they would just turn us down. So it was a waste of time. But yeah, we, we would go back and forth about everything. Retros always went over time. Yeah, debriefs always went over time. Everything went over time. So much deliberation of everything. Why do you, do you have a, any hypothesis why that was? Um, yeah, I think the VP of engineering was very specifically trying to create a, a very uh, open culture of people like a very sensitive family-like culture. And I think people as a result felt like they should really open up about how they feel and what's on their mind like all the time. So we spent a lot of time just like hearing people out about their general feelings about this, you know, thing that just came up. And so it was like not very focused. It was good in a way, but it definitely wasn't very focused. And so things tended to go over time. But then you at least felt like your voice was heard because you could raise things up. Right. Yeah. Personally, that's not really my thing. I'm pretty okay with not saying things in most situations. And then sometimes when it matters, just say something. But it's fine. Yeah inefficient but fine <laughs> so carl you meant you mentioned earlier that um there's a lot of times of things on the roadmap that is pretty rigorous of kind of just a whole bunch of things the company was executing on uh and no doubt some of those things might have been frivolous and not really directly impacting the company in a positive way did anyone bring that up or were there any hot debates about how much uh how many different projects the company's taking on at a certain time? Yeah, I think in general, I would say that this problem reflected the organization structure, which I think is a 
one of those laws. I forget which one, but uh, Conway's law, maybe. Anyway, yeah, uh, the company. You guys need to need to fact check me on that and then edit it out if it's not true. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway, the company. Wait, well, I don't remember what I was talking about now. Like, about just the number of projects being taken on and how many of them were possibly frivolous oh, yeah. and not really impacting the company in a positive way. And if there was hot debates around those, whether they should even be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it was a, it was just a matter of how the groups were organized, like within each team, I think they were doing usually what was best for that team. But the problem is the teams were based on products and like the distribution of how much each product actually impacts the bottom line is not, you know, evenly distributed. So mm-hmm. I think at a high level, I don't think we were very effective at a team level. Yeah. Some teams were more efficient than others and some product managers were better than others probably. So their ability to like guide that team in the right direction, you know, was uneven, but I think um, when I made that comment, I was more addressing the overall balance of resources because like, we had some, yeah, we had some teams that all the teams basically had the same number of people, but some of the products like didn't make any revenue. So it's throwing money away into a black hole versus let's keep making money with this big project. That's our bread. And right. Butter. Right. And one of, and one of the teams like was doing a refactor for like a year and a half. I swear. Oh no. no. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. So it's like, all right, cool. What was the project that you worked on that you were most proud of from a professional standpoint? I was most proud of the autonomous thing, like that MVP that that I made. Um, I did it with another another engineer, but the two of us we were we were for some reason that that idea came very urgently. Like we we want to build this and, and test it in the market like really really quickly. Uh, and I was like, okay, so you want like a scrappy MVP, like get it done as fast as possible and cut all corners. Is that right? And then they were like, well, maybe. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we need commitment on this. Either we're going to build a scrappy MVP that needs to be completely replaced when this product succeeds, or like, I'm going to have to build something more legit than that if you're not willing to replace it. And they said, yep, do that. So um, yeah, me and one other engineer, we built this whole product that we were able to actually start selling, I think in a month, maybe four or five weeks, and it was like ready to go. Admin panels and, you know, customer pages and emails that would get sent to customers, stuff like that. And all the, the plumbing of searching for candidates automatically automatically like approving and rejecting in the admin panel and uh and then sending those batches out to users yeah it was was all there that was fun and so were you proud of it even before customers started using it or was it just the fact of being able to deploy it or was it when people started to use it that you got excited yeah i was proud of just the the old school you know old linked out scrappiness that I was able to, to apply to this project and, and like how quickly it got done and how, you know, for, it's a rare thing that someone says, make me an MVP and then the engineers don't over-engineer it. 
So I was pretty proud about that. It was engineered exactly as requested at a speed that was surprisingly fast. And and how did your customers react to it? Was there positive feedback? Um, yeah, at first, you know, I didn't really track it too closely. At first it was slow, but it became like the strategy of the company for a bit. So that was like a big marketing thing that we were pushing, we even had like a small conference about it. So that was good, but I didn't really keep track too closely of how well it was selling. I think also after maybe six months, they replaced the whole the whole thing, which the new version took like a year to make, which is kind of crazy. Um, but, but it was a lot more legit and also had to be adaptable to actual autonomous, not just people <laughs> behind a screen. <laughs> so yeah, they, they, um, the team worked hard on that. I think it did do well. It did do pretty well in the, in the medium term. Uh, but I don't think, I don't think it's, I don't think it was like super successful in the long run. Got it. Now you mentioned earlier that you you know you start to have doubts about the company once um, you can no longer scrape the LinkedIn data. How did you feel sort of about coming to work every day when you were less sure about the company's prospects? Hmm. Good question. I think for me, I'm I'm pretty good at just focusing on the technical challenges. But the rest of the company went like way downhill in enthusiasm, right? Because if you're a salesperson who makes money on commission and you can't sell your, sell the product because people don't want it, you're not going to just like hide, hide yourself in the details. That's like really bad. So I think that really hurt the enjoyment of coming to work is that everyone started, went from like really excited all the time to like kind of just sad perpetually sad was leadership what was leadership saying to try and get people to not be sad oh jeez. yeah that was a whole thing they i don't think they really understood you know i think they believed their own doublespeak in some sense and so i don't think they really understood why people were so sad and they just kept trying to it felt very misattuned, but they just kept trying to like motivate us by like we, at one point we got these shirts that said stay urgent on them, like as a freebie. And everyone was just like, this is the most insensitive thing I've seen in a while. Like, what are you talking about? We're working so hard. Are you kidding me? You're going to blame this on us. It was, it was such a miss. It was such a miss. So, yeah, it was just like, you know, get, there's some people in in any company, right, that are going to be excited no matter what. And I think they were just trying to, like, emphasize those people and why they're so happy and, like, kind of just steer, steer the culture. But I think looking back, the sadness is obviously just a symptom of what's going on. It's not that now we have a bunch of sad people. <laughs> it's it's just like, it's the circumstances are just sad. So maybe you should change the circumstances instead of trying to change the sadness, you know? Would have been a little bit more effective. Go for the root cause, not just, not just <laughs> ask you to be urgent. Yeah, as much as I love a new t-shirt, 
I still have that t-shirt, by the way. It's, I, I threw away most of my most of the shirts, but I definitely still have that one. Um, so when, when everyone's sad, how is that manifesting itself in, in your day-to-day? Yeah, well, it didn't really too much until the engineers started getting sad. Then it got bad. Then it was like, there's so many one-on-ones. I, I told you, like, everyone was very sensitive. So everyone wanted to talk about everything when they were sad. So it was like so many one-on-ones and walks and like meetings of just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, I don't really know about this. And I don't think our process is quite right. And all kinds of, and what do, what do we think about this? The salesperson told me this and it doesn't, it sounds kind of negative. What do we think about that? And so we spend a lot of time on those things. And that just kind of dragged down the vibe, I would say. But we, as an engineering group, we stayed relatively positive still. Uh, the rest of the company, I remember them saying like, man, I wish we, I wish we were isolated like the engineers. Like they seem so happy over there. <laughs> so that was, that was cool. Um, everyone else started like quitting a lot. So there was a lot of turnover in the rest of the company, but the engineering turnover was like near zero. No one was quitting. Even though you saw the sadness elsewhere, people were, you, everyone in engineering just keep the head down and, and do the work. And so that's why they didn't leave. Yeah. Cause we didn't really understand why the people were so sad now. And our VP, like I said, was very, um, did a very good job at making it like a family vibe. So, it was kind of like, look, our family's going through a hard time. And the engineering family is going through a hard time being part of this bigger family. But that's okay. We'll all just band together and figure it out. So we, we still felt like we could just, uh, we could get through it. But And and by this point, you were getting Boba twice a week, so all was good. <laughs> right, exactly. So maybe maybe he had the right idea, you know. Maybe I was wrong, and maybe you do treat the symptoms by just feeding us sugar and caffeine. Anyone's going to be happy with boba. I mean, come on. And so when when other people, when people in the rest of the company were leaving, were they being replaced, or did the company start to shrink in size? Yeah, around the time that we struggled to raise the Series D, I think like midway through between C and D, I think we started letting people just leave and not backfilling them. Because I think the finances at that point, this is all in retrospect, but I think the finances at that point were not pretty. But at the time, I had no idea. But did you know, like, oh, they aren't backfilling? And did you question why? Um, I don't think it was noticeable. I wasn't really paying that close attention to the count of people that worked at the company. We did have one engineer who wrote a, a script on Slack to... Uh, get a notification every time someone's Slack account was deactivated. <laughs> <laughs> so, because at some point they uh, stopped sending out company emails about people leaving. <laughs> so <laughs> he wanted to be, you know, up to date with the news. So that, that was our way of knowing when people would leave. And he would always show me. He sat next to me. I think that should be a come as an add-on with Slack because that I've had that multiple oh, yeah. companies where people leave and you don't know that they've left, and so that's brilliant. <laughs> yep, yep. For anyone listening, you know, if you have Slack admin access, you can script that up pretty easily. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I guess maybe we should move on to the to the leaving part. What made you start to consider, you know, people getting a little sad? What made you start considering uh, leaving Linked Out? I think the turnover was a problem. And then I was, but I was still thinking, well, I, I kind of want to see this through because the last company I worked at was just like up and to the right. You know, they were just growing and growing and getting ready for IPO and then and then IPOing. So that was like as successful as it could be. Unfortunately, I didn't have that much equity in that company, but you know, it was nice to see what happens in the best case startup scenario. But this is like pretty clearly becoming, oh, hey, we can't, we couldn't raise a round of funding, and now everything's kind of question up in the air, and we have we keep like hustling on these different products because we think they're gonna like save us. You know, we're in a like SOS moment, and so I'm like, wow, this is actually really interesting, like cool life experience, you know? I mean, it does come at a risk because like if there's a layoff or anything like that, then I I could be in trouble. But I was like, I think I'm willing to take on that risk to find out what happens when a company falls apart. So so I guess that wasn't when I started thinking about leaving, but that was, it was like other people were starting to tell me to leave. And I was like, no, I want to see this. I want to see this through. But then we actually did have a big layoff and that day was really bad. It was like, a, I think a quarter of the company got laid off in one day. That's about 25 people, something like that. And including some engineers and product people. And, oh man, that was like such a dystopian morning. It was like, we were just all sitting on our desks and then we did, you know, did our normal stand up. And I remember seeing... Uh, the leader of HR in a room with one person and I looked in another room and there was another like very leadership person in there with another employee and I was looking around and I'm like something fishy is happening and one of the managers on our team that was in the stand-up looked at me and gave me the like shut up look and I was like "Uh uh-oh something's going down so we finished our stand-ups went back to our desks I sat down and it just turns into this stream of product engineering people that were saying goodbye. They're like, oh, I guess it's my last day. Like shocked, mortified, like not sure what to do. And like, now I guess I just have to say goodbye to my friends because I'm not going to see them anymore. And then like take my box and leave. And that happened like, I think there were five or six people in our group that got let go and it was staggered. So it would, it would, one person would walk through, say goodbye, they would leave, and we'd be like, oh my gosh, wow, that's crazy. You know, start the gossip session, and then, oh, there's another one. And it's like, oh no. And then at some point, we were just like, well, I guess we shouldn't say anything until this is definitely over, because <laughs> anyone that we're talking to right now could be let go. That would be sad. And uh, yeah, after, after like, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, it kind of died down. And then they sent us an email, I think, saying what happened. And yeah, we had an all hands later that day. That was pretty sad. Talking about, and the CEO was like really real with us, which, the, so the double speak ended there, basically. It was just like, hey, I should have kept you guys more in the loop. We talk about transparency a lot and we weren't really doing it. And so we need to be honest. And like we thought, 
just go like series by series by series and just keep raising money. And that's a startup dream and startup path. But actually like our, our vitals weren't looking too good and we just kept pressing on anyway. And we would have been in a better situation if we hadn't hired so many people and just were more cautious, but you know, it was a miscalculation on, on our part and all that. It was like, all right, well, thanks for the, thanks for the truth. But also, yeah, it's kind of too late. So, uh, more people quit. And, uh, I think 10 more people quit after that. And then, yeah, there was still more attrition after like over the next few months. So we also had no recruiting team at that point. Like they all got cut, which is ironic. Very, very <laughs> ironic for, <laughs> for a sourcing tool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, so anyway, when I guess that's a tangent to tell you about when I was going to leave. It was shortly after the, the layoffs. I was thinking, all right, well, I was saying before that I want to stick it through to see what it's like to be in this situation. And then once that layoff happened, I was like, well, now I know what it's like. I, I don't think there's, I'm going to see anything unique after this. It's just going to be more sadness. So then I was more open to all right i i gotta just pick a date and just get out of here um and then yeah uh, i actually asked to go to a performance boot camp uh we were using uh yeah for the stack that we were using at the time and at that boot camp i met someone that worked at one of the big tech companies which i was really surprised to see them there because we we were using ruby on rails for everything and so it's kind of like wait what big tech companies using ruby on rails that's weird and I mean, like, you know, fang, big tech kind of thing. Like, that's kind of odd. Mm -hmm. But sure yeah. enough, they had a team that was that was working with Rails inside of that company. And I was like, wait, are you hiring right now? And he was like, not my team, but the team right next to me is. And then he messaged me later. I took his contact info. You know, we had lunch together and stuff. And then he messaged me later and said, oh, actually, we are hiring. So here's the job rec. Uh, you know, good luck. And I also found out they don't, they, on that team, they didn't ask that many theory questions. I told you before, <laughs> I'm not that good at those. So I was like, wow, this, this could be like really good. I, I could make my way into big tech, which would be another like new life experience. So yeah, that's actually what ended up working out. I was, I had been studying all those algorithm stuff and all that, like for a couple months before. But, but once I met this guy, I was like, well, apparently I don't need that for this particular interview. So let me just try it and see what happens. And uh, yeah, I, I got the job. And uh, at that point, I was like, well, that's that's the end because the job offer was like way, way better than what I was getting paid. So. So there was nothing, no, no second thought about leaving. No, nah, no way. It was like. I would have been reluctant to like leave people behind and all that if it was like a lateral move, but it was like a huge upgrade for me. So. No, no. Were any of your colleagues sad to see you go or what were, what was that conversation like when you let people know that, that you were leaving? Yeah. People were very sad. I think especially it was very early on uh, in the, like the engineering attrition was still very, very low. I mean, besides the layoff people that we lost, but so it was very, early on in that process. And so people were kind of shocked to hear, but at the same time, 
you know, they understood. And I think people were, like I said, we were a family, but we were an unhappy family at that point. So it was kind of like, I think people were, were looking for someone to take the lead on like doing something about this. Everyone else was kind of waiting. It was waiting for people to take the first move. So yeah, they were, they were pretty sad, um, but they were excited for me as well. And I, I could tell, I think it inspired hope because I think someone else right before me got a job at, at Facebook as well. And so it's like pretty exciting to see people coming out of this, you know, just random startup and move and getting like enough experience to be passing interviews at these big tech companies, you know, as senior engineers. So Carl, if we had a time machine and you could go back to uh, when you were interviewing at linked out, uh, would you tell yourself to stick with us, take this job? Or would you say, Hey, maybe go find something else. I would take the job still. Uh, the only change I would make is probably that not stay there so long, <laughs> but I think I, ha- it was a, it was a good time. It was a great time. Then it was a good time. Then it was a not so great time, but <laughs> Uh, the things I learned there were extremely helpful for me to land my next job. And, you know, I think, I still think it's all about the journey. So as long as I'm enjoying myself in the moment, I think that's, that's good. And that's, that's fine. And I, I will for sure work with some of these people again in the future. I I already am working with one. Um, but yeah, it was a, from the company level, kind of a disaster, but from from my perspective, it was a good life experience. I would do it again. Excellent. Carl, thanks so much for coming out on the show and sharing your story. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Today's episode really illustrates why it is so hard to get out of the SaaS graveyard. Things that worked well when you were a small company are hard to scale and grow beyond that 50 million revenue range. Yeah. And I think Carl really exemplified a lot of what those challenges were. You know, the first one being, you know, the executive team wanted to see the engineering team grow. And all of a sudden, all of his time was now dedicated to interviewing people, which feels a little bit of like a thankless task. And it's not even clear if there's going to be end result at the end of the day from people just saying no or other people just the company deciding no for that candidate. And it just feels kind of like wasted time where really what Carl wanted to be doing was like, you know, building MVPs, shipping product, creating value for customers. But now all his time was sucked up in that way. And even when they did hit their hiring targets of being kind of that 20 level of engineers, they had the same output. They had the exact same output they did when they had five people doing a whole bunch of different tasks. And now they had to do the whole management process of like, who's going to do X, who's going to do Y. And then they got the exact same end result there. But of course, it didn't really translate necessarily to the true value of what they wanted to be shipping to their customers because, you know, it's really hard when you're a company of all these resources, saying no becomes a lot uh, easier to avoid. Like people just want to say yes to everything because it's like, why not? We have 20 engineers. Let's do this. Let's do that. Which just results in low priority work being uh, focused on opposed to the most important thing that really is going to drive the bottom line and move the company forward which I think was like one of the big downfalls for linked out at the end of the day is they got, uh, they weren't focused enough. What, what about you, Jake? What stood out to you from, from this? Yeah. I think, you know, what you said makes 
you know, a lot of times like you lose that scrappiness of when you're you're that smaller company and and you know, it wasn't just in terms of, you know, the official work work stuff, it was also in their social uh, life that you know, Carl brought up that, you know, when he first started, he'd be sitting at a big table and not knowing, um, you know, it could be someone next to marketing and finance, whatever. He would just talk to them and he started to really meet more of the company that way. But when it's a bigger company and there are more tables, well, then you just sort of congregate with the group that you already know. Um, and then at the parties, he said that he was, you know, wasn't likely to stick around as much that, you know, sort of have a drink and then leave. Again, when it's sort of that bigger crowd of like 100 people at a company event, you can leave and no one knows, but when there's only like 20 or 30 of you, it sort of stands out like, oh, why is Carl leaving early? Um, and so it's not just the, that it's harder to work efficiently, it's harder to have that same camaraderie. Um, I know we've, we've discussed this experience of having it where the executives don't, at larger companies, the execs don't hang out with you as much, that you can have a real personal connection with that small company. Everyone is sort of treated as equals, but as the companies get bigger and bigger, execs sort of start to go into that you know ivory tower and they 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 have different actions than you they don't eat lunch with you anymore um they they talk a different way than you and so that that social aspect changes and again when you go to from that really small startup to to a larger company yeah and you know i think that that's true for all companies when you start adding more management layers in there and that's not necessarily always a bad thing but there's a point when people are getting a bit disconnect more disconnected than they should be you know i think the big thing with that stay urgent t-shirt where everyone at the company at least on carl's team was kind of like the car's on fire and then management came back and said no it's not on fire you just need to drive faster uh it's pretty much what their answer was that was with that shirt even they knew very well that that was not the case and that they had a major product issue they had to to address right yeah it'd be interesting to see what yeah what was that conversation like of like Oh, we we just lost the ability to scrape LinkedIn data, but let's give everyone a T-shirt that tells them to work harder, and that'll fix all the problems. And you know, and everyone in that room was nodding their head yes at some point and be like, yeah, no, that's a great idea. Which you know, the people at the at the lower levels, you know, they don't quite see it that way. Well, I think that wraps it up for for episode ten. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for episode eleven coming soon. <laughs>